Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. Hi, just a quick note that in the show we refer to derivatives, which are a type of financial contract whose value is dependent on an underlying assets or group of assets or a benchmark. And we also mentioned defined benefit or DB pensions. Now they're ones that pay you an income in retirement based on your most recent previous salary. Anyway, on with the show. So last week, investment markets took a nosedive, in particular, the UK government bond market, the British pound and share prices of UK-based companies. It coincided with the British government's mini-budget. Our aim over the medium term is to reach a trend rate of growth of 2.5%. And our plan, Mr Speaker, is to expand the supply side of the economy through tax incentives and reform. The fallout affected international markets too, and it's left some investors fearing broader contagion. Because it really is quite extraordinary. And up until Friday, we saw a sell-off in fixed income, you know, quite, quite, quite large, but not on the scale that we saw post the budget announcement on Friday, which is when you really, really started to some sort of a negative feedback loop. In this show, we speak to Andy Chalton, head of fixed income at Schroders, to find out what happened what effect it might still have on broader markets and where's left for nervous investors to put their money. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. Given what the world has been through over the last two years, I try to refrain from using uh, the word unprecedented, but events of the last two weeks, particularly in the UK, feel extraordinary. Uh, Addie Chilton, a welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, so what's the last week been like uh, for you, in particular, an investor in bond markets? Um, I think the best word to describe it is bruising. Um, obviously, we've lived through volatility before. It felt like this one was self-inflicted by a major government, which makes it you know, harder to digest. And I think the one thing that surprised people was some of the ripple effects in other markets um, as a result of, of the challenges the UK faced. Yeah, have you, you said we've been through it before? Any particular experiences? Um, I think probably the, the thing that surprised people this time around is since the financial crisis, every time there's been an issue, you felt like central banks were very quick to respond. This time, it felt like, yes, the, the Bank of England intervened, but it felt like we had to bring them kicking and screaming to do that. And I think it was a necessary move to just give the market a bit of stability a bit of calmness so that people can reassess things in, in a much um, cleaner, calmer frame of mind. So we've talked about some extreme moves in the market. Can you put into context exactly what happened? Um, yeah, I mean, I've never seen anything like it in a government bond market, certainly in developed markets. I guess it all started with the mini budget, as it's being referred to in the press here. Uh, the UK government announced a number of um, packages, mainly to support the energy crisis to cap energy prices for, for consumers and a number of tax cuts as well, which led to an increase in the deficit. I think perhaps what they misjudged is that just like in a corporate bond market or in fact any other asset class, you need to incentivize people to buy your securities. And I think there was a concern amongst bond investors that perhaps this unfunded tax cut and energy intervention meant that the price that the bond market would demand to lend money to the UK government, which is essentially what, what a bond is, needed to be higher. I guess the magnitude of that 
increase, given that the, the government hadn't produced the, um, any further forecasts to support their plan, was much sharper than people expected. That led to some collateral calls on derivatives um, in the UK pension market, a thing called LDI, liability-driven investing. And then it began to feed upon itself to a certain extent. And with each move lower in, in bond prices, higher in bond yields, pension plans needed more cash to, to manage these derivative positions until it got to, to the stage where the Bank of England intervened and we got a sharp, sharp reversal. Glad you mentioned liability-driven investing, because I think probably for a lot of people up until last week, they'd never even heard of it. Can you, in the simplest form, because I spent the last week trying to figure out what it is and what it does, exactly what it is and exactly how why the effect was so big on that market? Yes, yeah, so if, if you think of a corporate pension plan, a defined benefit pension plan, um, the kind of pension plan we frankly used to have, we don't really have anymore, um, that's a series of cash flows that you owe to your pensioners, your retirees, or, or, or those who are still in the plan. And the way that a company manages that liability is they try and match the investments in the pension plan with those cash flows. And without getting too technical, the way they do that is they use a discount rate, i.e. They, they try and put a present value on those future cash flows using government bond yields. What happened historically is that many of those pension plans were underfunded and their biggest risk was that interest rates would fall. So they put in place um, plans using either government bonds or more often derivatives to try and manage that interest rate risk so that at least they knew what they were going for. And frankly, until 10 days ago, it's been a it's been a great success. Um, pension plans were slowly building up their funding ratios, so they were making sure they had the money in place to pay those future pension plans. And I suppose, perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, the one risk that they didn't think about was the risk that government bond yields, typically seen as the safest place to invest, aside from cash, would move to this in the kind of magnitudes that we've seen. And it was that move that surprised them, led to these needs for collateral, which is to, to make sure that you're, you're managing the derivative positions effectively, which meant they needed to get cash into, the, into their pockets so they could pay for the derivative moves. And ironically, whilst the dust has yet to fully settle, what we expect to see is many pension plans will actually be in a much better place now from a funding perspective than they were a few weeks ago. The issue really is that they almost became like an owner of a stately home. They were asset rich, but cash poor. And so what happened is when they needed the cash, they had to do a fire sale of some of the art on the walls, which in many cases was growth assets, you know, equities, emerging market debt, credit, etc., to try and get some cash into the coffers to make sure they could, they could live to fight another day. So people with defined benefit pension plans shouldn't be panicking too much at the moment? No, I think it's important that, that we say that. You know, defined benefit pension plans are ultimately the responsibility of the employer. So the, uh, the important thing is that the employer was, was trying to manage that risk for their own balance sheet. In some cases, they'd outsourced it to insurance companies or whatever, but it, it remains an obligation for the employer. Um, there was a, a, a bruising, yet brief, period of a, a week or so ago that led to some uh, decisions had to be made quickly, but our understanding is that, um, that we've, as I say, we live to fight another day. And I think looking forward, 
people will be much more focused on the levels of leverage they have in the system, the amount of liquidity, i.e. cash they have, and will be looking at a much lower risk framework for liability-driven plans going forward. Yeah, this sounds a lot like some of the things we were hearing around 2008 when the financial crisis happened. And I have seen reports likening what happened last week in the LDIR market to what happened with mortgage-backed securities during the great financial crisis. Is that hyperbole or a little bit too close to the truth? No, I think that's taking it too far, to yeah. be honest. I think, as I, as I say, if, if you think of the most rock-solid investment, it's typically a government bond, you know. Think of the UK government. Ultimately, if they have to, they can just print more pounds to, to repay their debt. The, the mistake, with the benefit of hindsight, is that market participants, particularly in the LDI world, didn't expect to see the, the level of volatility in a government bond market. You know, we're talking things moving hundreds of basis points in a day, so much, much bigger than we normally see, that led to the needs for collateral for the derivative plans. So it's not that people were taking, out, taking outsized positions on risky markets. They had a position on a market they thought was arguably the most defensive in, in their overall portfolio. But that volatility triggered by the, uh, by the um, lack of clarity around the mini budget and the funding of the deficit really triggered some of the problems. And, and I think the intervention of the Bank of England put an end to this kind of feeding frenzy because, as you well know, Financial markets, once um, some of these sharks sniff out a problem, they all come in and feed on it. And so it be certainly became exacerbated by other market participants pushing it further and further. But I don't think it's a, a case of, of you, know, um, you know, the mortgage market where people were um, underwriting shoddy securities or anything like that. You mentioned the Bank of England there coming in at the 11th hour. Can you explain why they might have left it so long and what impacts their actions have had? Um, I think that's a very good question. I think <laughs> the um, I think the severity of the move probably did surprise them. We had the budget, I think, was Thursday afternoon. Market started moving on Friday, and then it accelerated Monday and Tuesday. I think there must have been a moment where they were taking pause because, with another part of the Bank of England, they're trying to begin quantitative tightening. So it feels slightly counterintuitive to have such a targeted. Um, quantitative easing operation happening at the same time. But I think what they really demonstrated is whilst the headline figures you see in the press are 65 billion, that was kind of the loaded gun they had in their pocket. If they had to spend it, and I believe from something I heard this morning, they had authorization up to 100 billion. But what actually happens is once the market knows the bank is, is willing to intervene, that loaded gun in, in, the, in the holster is enough for things to calm down and that feeding frenzy to, to abate and then things have moved to a different level. I think what we've got to hope now is that we've got this window until October the 14th, I believe, where pension plans will be busy sorting out the appropriate level of rev leverage, making sure they've got the appropriate levels of liquidity and when necessary, going to the, the sponsor and, and demanding um, a contribution to add to it. Yeah, I read somewhere that the amount of liabilities held by UK pension funds that have been hedged with LDI strategies has more than tripled in size to so about £1.5 trillion in the 10 years through to 2020. That's according to the UK Investment Association. Now, to put that in context, the entire UK government debt market is £2.3 trillion. So, is what the Bank of England have done so far enough, or do you think they might need to do more? <laughs> It's interesting because it's easy to throw around those big numbers, but the size of the hedging really just reflects the size of the commitment 
of defined benefit pension plans. So it's not that people have taken outsized bets. It's just the reality is there is 1.5 trillion's worth of commitments in the future in terms of, 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 of retirement payments to pensions. So it, it is a very large number, but at the same time, it's to be paid out over the next 30, 40 years. So I think in some ways, if we had an, an LDI expert on here, they, they'd tell you that actually it was a prudent thing to do because it, it left pension plans in a, in a higher funded position over time because they weren't as vulnerable to swings in the market perhaps as, perhaps as they were when they didn't have any of these hedging um, processes in place. But clearly, as soon as you see big numbers and you see the volatility we saw last week, it's appropriate to, um, for people to question what's gone on. And I think the big one thing we'll certainly see from, from the regulators going forward is a bit more regulation in this space. Um, really, it was somewhat self-regulated before. And you could argue um, that it was the bank's willingness to lend that put a cap on the amount of leverage that a pension plan was allowed. I think we'll see in the very short um, future that um, regulators or, or the government will come with some sort of regulation on limiting the leverage that uh, pension plans or LDI plans are allowed to have, therefore reducing the systemic risk going forward, because we've had a, a clearly a warning shot across the bounds. Yeah, you've mentioned the fact that the Bank, bank of England now look as if it got two parts, certainly in a short space of time, acting against each other, one trying to uh, tighten uh, monetary policy and the other one trying to ease it. Given the fact they still haven't stepped in and raised interest rates. What can you tell about the Bank of England's attitude towards inflation, given the fact that they haven't done that yet and they, they said they're going to wait till the next uh, policy meeting? So I think it's important to isolate the, the issue around LDI and, and the long end of the market from the broader mandate the Bank of England has. I don't think that changes. Certainly the market is expecting them to continue to hike rates. I think their intervention last week was sufficient and having an emergency rate hike perhaps would have given the wrong signal and almost a signal of panic. Um, so I don't think it's really changed their determination to beat inflation. Um, it's just reacted to a very clear and present danger affecting a very particular part of the market for a very particular reason. And now they've given that area of the market or that, that um, buyer base a window to... to um, reset where they are. And as I say, going forward, I think the risk will be much more muted. Has there been any, has there been any reputational damage for either the central bank or the, or the UK government in this episode? <laughs> um, God, that sounds like a hospital pass. Um, yeah, I think the UK government, I do think they've what they missed in all this is that you have to persuade people to lend you money. That's what a bond is. As I said before, you know, whether you, you see it more often, it's, it's clearer in Europe because obviously in the Eurozone, it's the same currency risk, it's the same central bank. But, you know, the price of Portuguese bonds or the yield of a Portuguese bond is higher than that of a German bond, i.e. investors are telling you that they want to have a slightly higher compensation to own Portuguese debt than do German debt because I think the credit quality of Portugal is, is not as strong as that of Germany. And I think perhaps the UK government almost forgot that part, that they need to incentivise people to buy their debt. It's not like the US Treasury market, which is the go-to kind of bond market in the world when people want to park money, when people want a risk-off asset. It's the US Treasury market. The UK isn't, doesn't have that benefit. So I think they maybe misjudged that. 
Could the Bank of England have acted earlier? I mean, yes. But did they act decisively and did it have the right outcome? Again, yes. So it's been, it's been a rocky few days, there's no question. Um, but I think ultimately we have to look at what has happened. I, I do think it's important for the government to, to continue to be a bit more open and ideally publish the OER sooner rather than later because that's what will bring confidence back to international investors and their willingness to fund the UK deficit. OK, so there's a famous quote from former Democratic political advisor James Carver who said if there was reincarnation, he'd like to come back as the bond market because you can intimidate anyone. Is that what we saw last week or is there something a little bit more dysfunctional going on? Um, I mean, there is a phrase, bond vigilantes. I think perhaps after a decade plus of low interest rates and QE and, and central banks' willingness to intervene almost at the drop of a hat, that's maybe a bit disingenuous, but willingness to intervene was much higher. People forgot this idea that investors do need to be paid for credit risk, liquidity risk. And I think that that's the whole point of this, is now with, with yields having moved higher, many investors are international in nature. You know, if they're going to choose to buy UK government debt rather than US Treasuries or rather than German government debt or, or whatever else, they have to assess the risk, the liquidity, um, the volatility of that market. And the UK's had a big advantage because of pension plan demand that their debt maturities are actually much longer, which has allowed the UK government to effectively, it's called terming out their debt. So the average maturity, I think, of, um, or the average duration, I think it is, of, of UK government debt is about double that of the US or Germany, for instance, which has been to a great advantage because it means you can you have, like a corporate, you can have more certainty over your funding. But as pension plans need for debt reduces because you know people of my age don't have defined benefits we have defined contribution as that demand declines then arguably the uk government needs to attract other types of investors in the longer term to buy their debt and that is a different calculation okay so that's the story behind the events of a volatile week particularly in the uk in part two of the show we'll look at the broader consequences across international markets get in touch with us by email at shoulders podcasts at shoulders.com or visit our website shoulders.com forward slash investor download okay so while the british pound and uk bond markets have stabilized for now the moves last week happened at the same time stock markets around the world fell again and the dollar strengthened further suggesting investors were buying so-called safer assets so andy do you think the broader market volatility was a coincidence or was what happened in the uk a trigger of something that people were fearing, which is a bit of contagion? Um, clearly, the, the bond market particularly has, has been very volatile this year. We've seen yields peak at 3.5% in mid-June, 10-year treasuries, that is, dropped to 260 by the early summer before rebounding to 4% last week. I do think there's been some contagion from the situation in the UK, mainly because pension plans looked at assets overseas in order to, to create some liquidity. So we've seen people selling um, small pieces of US credit or emerging market debt or, or other asset classes, kind of non-core asset classes for a UK pension plan. I think more broadly, what the market is contending with is, is this, this fight between the idea that inflation is entrenched and here to stay versus you know, we're beginning to see a slowdown in housing markets in some countries. Some central banks have moved further and faster than, than others. Kind of interesting, with, we're recording this on a Wednesday. Yesterday, we had some job data in the US which suggested that the labour market in the US is slowing down 
Everybody thinks that's great news because it's an indication perhaps that inflation is, is a bit more under control than it was. Equity markets rallied. Um, everyone kind of smiling. My screens look green. Fast forward to today, we had some a different economic um, data, the ISM in the US, which suggested that the economy continues to, to, to bound ahead strongly. Bonds are down, equities are down. So <laughs> that's this kind of balance at the moment because the, we've, we've had a bearish central banks now for the best part of, of the year. Obviously, we've had the, the, the tragic um, events in, in Ukraine and the, and the consequent energy prices. But now people are looking for signals that inflation isn't as entrenched. They, they kind of want it to turn and they'll jump on any in, uh, indicators that it has. And then when they see disappointment, you'll see those sharp reversals. And it is a volatile market because we're in that, you feel that we're, we're in that kind of zone where the inflection point is is close, but we don't know how close. Is there a concern that what's happened in the UK could be repeated elsewhere? Do uh, international markets have their equivalents of an LDI market? Not to the same extent. So I spent a long time working in the US. One of the things that US investors, partly because of, of some um, derivative problems they've had, the very famous one in Orange County, are much more cautious around derivatives. So you don't have the same type of framework in the US. Many other countries have more of a pay-as-you-go pay -go system. So there are similar models elsewhere, but we know just by talking to some of our international colleagues that the same warning shot happened here was heard in other places and people are busily um, checking the resilience and the, uh, the tolerance levels, liquidity levels of their plans just to make sure um, that that doesn't happen to them. So in a weird way, it's almost a good thing. And do you think it might have had any effect on any of the other central banks around the world about their uh, quantitative tightening policies? No. So with the markets in turmoil, once more, the big question is where do investors look now for somewhere attractive to invest? And that's what we'll discuss in the final part of the show. So there'll be a lot of investors spooked once more by the events of last week and wondering what to do with their money. Squirrel it away or be brave and take some risks. So let's start with the UK first. How investable is the UK at the moment, given the standoff between the government policy, the central bank and everything else that the economy is having to contend with? I think the good thing about all the, the challenges facing the UK is they're very well publicised. Um, there's, there's, hopefully there's nothing... Um, squirreled away that we don't know about. Um, of course, investors like certainty and they'd like, you know, to, to see um, all the clouds clear. But I think now is the time that, that people should be, certainly from a fixed income investment perspective, from a bond market perspective, begin to start reassessing their allocation to fixed income um, and potentially increasing it. You look at where bond yields have, have moved just in the last, or just year to date, you know, we can see short dated credit at 7%. That's 7% income effectively, yielding 7%, gives you a decent cushion for further uncertainty. Um, so yeah, the clouds haven't cleared, there's still things that need addressing, but at the same time, valuations have corrected a long way, so it, it's certainly worth a look in our view. Yeah, and are there other areas of the UK market that look attractive at all? Well, obviously I'm a fixed income guy, so I'm gonna tell you to buy bonds all day long. Um, <laughs> But I think certainly if you look at international comparisons, the UK equity market still looks cheap versus other markets. Um, obviously, the currency has made it more attractive for, for 
in terms of you know corporate UK looks a lot cheaper for for dollar based investors than it did before. So, but I think the one challenge certainly to my equity colleagues is they'd like to see a bit more clarity on earnings revisions, maybe reflecting the future rather than what the reality of the future rather than what they wish the future was. And then if you see those earnings revisions come through and, and they become a bit more um, a bit more realistic, a bit basically revised down, I think it'll 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 clear a lot of um, noise and allow people to, to look forward in a more optimistic way. Yeah, you mentioned the strong dollar there. How long do you think that's going to remain a theme for? <laughs> um, it does feel like at the moment it always wins. Um, <laughs> I do think you don't really need a reversal of that. You just need stability in the dollar um, to open up particularly emerging markets, both equity and fixed income. I think they would both benefit from a stable dollar rather than a dollar that feels like it's forever grinding higher. Um, I think clearly the, the, the interest rate differentials between countries are shrinking. Um, so that should be supportive of, of you know, the euro and sterling. But yeah, it's it's one of those trends that's been going on for a long time and I'd be a brave person to call the end of it, but we could just do with a pause and I think that would allow people to, to review the market differently. And internationally, is there any anywhere that's looking attractive at the moment? Um, you know, I think the US, obviously it's the deepest, most liquid market. There's the biggest opportunity set there. And the one thing you see in, in episodes like this is increased dispersion between um, credits. So certainly from a credit perspective, my colleagues in the US definitely like the US credit market, particularly investment grade. I think they want to see a bit more of that earnings revision before moving into high yield. I think they'd be sort of dipping their toe in high yield rather than going um, more seriously into the high yield market. Similarly in, in Europe, frankly, you know, Europe, arguably the ECB is behind the Bank of England and the Fed in terms of rate hikes. But again, that's pretty well publicised. The credit market's there already pricing in um, a mild recession. I guess the argument is how much you know, the probability of mild recession versus something more severe, plus how much are you compensated in terms of yield for that uncertainty. But again, we, 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 we're finding interesting opportunities across credit because of that dispersion. So it's not necessarily that you want to kind of blindly go in and buy the index, but you do want to go in, I think, and, and start beginning to look at your exposures and potentially increasing it to credit, both in the US and Europe. Yeah, it sounds like there's opportunities, but it's not an all-in at this situation. Yeah, exactly. Lovely. Andy, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up. Investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy.